Hello again. It's good to be back. And I'm bringing you on this occasion, episode five of our studies in the book of Revelation. And we're going to be looking at Revelation chapter two. I was present some years ago at a service where the pastor, uh, without any prior warning, asked the congregation to find in their Bibles the second letter to the Ephesians. And then he paused and watched while there was much scuffling of pages and uh, a number of uh, very puzzled faces and just a small handful of knowing smiles of people who turned to the book of Revelation. Now, the reason he asked them to do that uh, was not just to trick them, but uh, to find out how well his congregation actually knew their Bibles. And I think he was very disappointed that so few uh, were able to solve the riddle that he sent them. Well, uh, we're going to look at the second letter to the Ephesians, because chapters two and three of the book of Revelation consist of seven letters sent to the churches, the seven churches of Asia Minor, and dictated by the glorified Christ himself to John the Apostle. Uh, however, we might note that John did not send the letters uh, to the individual churches. He incorporated all seven letters in the book of Revelation, in the total book that he would then send as a whole to all seven churches, and of course beyond that, eventually to ourselves. The letters, therefore, are open letters. And it is the intention of the Lord that uh, although each letter had a particular reference and relevance to one church, nevertheless, all the churches could benefit from the lessons taught and the warnings given. So let's just look uh, for a moment at the letter to the Ephesian church, which is in uh, Revelation chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. I'm going to read that now, and uh, you can follow me in your own Bibles. I hope you will do that, because you'll need to have your Bibles open while I'm talking about this letter. The Lord Jesus is speaking, dictating to John. To the angel of the church of Ephesus, write, These things, says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles 
and are not, and have found them to be liars, and you have persevered and have patience, and have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Now, I just want to draw your attention to begin with to the structure of this letter because it's the same structure that is employed for all seven letters to the churches. It begins with the instruction to send the letter to the angel of the church. And as we saw last time, that can't, could not possibly be a supernatural being because it had to be a literal physical book that John was sending. And in any case, the symbol of the stars represents the angel. So this isn't a symbolic term either. And since the original Greek word simply means messenger, uh, we are right to uh, assume that the letter had to be sent to the messenger, the one in each church who was responsible for reading out aloud any apostolic uh, uh, epistle or message that came to that church. They didn't have Bibles of their own, of course. They certainly didn't have New Testaments. So anything that uh, came from an inspired writer had to be read out. And then the second thing we notice about the structure of the letter is that the Lord Jesus Christ introduces himself by describing himself in terms that are borrowed from chapter one. Uh, these things says he who, and here comes the description, who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, which represent, of course, the churches. And each of the seven epistles has such an introduction and self-description by Christ. Uh, but what determines which of the many attributes and descriptions we have of the glorified Christ in chapter 1, which of those he, he come, brings forward for any particular church? And I think there must be a reason, because the descriptions are different for the seven churches. And the reason, I think, is that he picks out from chapter 1, where there are many different descriptions, and, uh, and, and there are many different descriptions of 
Christ in his glory, he picks out those that are most relevant to the particular church, those which that particular church needs to particularly remember and recall. So there is the self-introduction. And then in verse 2, uh, we have the expression, I know your works. Now that is also common to all seven letters. I know your works. And this is perhaps a more important statement than appears at first sight. Uh, he doesn't say, I know about your works, as if he is observing them from a distance. The knowledge he speaks of here, as we, I think, will see as we go on, the knowledge he refers to here is an intimate knowledge. He is, after all, the one who holds the seven stars, the preachers of the churches in his hands, and the one who walks among the golden lampstands. And he does so in order, I think, to uh, help us remember that in the tabernacle of old, under the Mosaic system, it was the priests who tended to the menorah, the seven-branch lampstand. The priests tended that lampstand, uh, keeping the lamps filled with oil and the wicks trimmed so that the light did not fade or go out. Well, there's an analogy here. Christ doesn't walk aimlessly among the golden lampstands, the churches. He, he walks among them with a purpose. And he therefore has an intimate knowledge of their works. And then he goes on to describe the works. Verse uh, 2, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them to be liars. And you have persevered and have patience, and have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. Now, all of those are highly commendable. Uh, it is, uh, at first sight, a statement of praise that the Lord has for the church at Ephesus. But I, I want you to notice that there is some degree of repetition here. Uh, patience mentioned twice and, and, and labor mentioned twice. But this is not random. This is a rather interesting point that is not at all obvious. The works uh, that are described here, uh, which incidentally include not only activities, but also attitudes. Patience is an attitude, for example. Uh, the, the works that are listed here are set out in uh, what is called a chiastic form. And, and I need to explain that. It, it can be easily described in terms of letters. A is followed by B, is followed by C, 
is followed by C starred, is followed by B starred, and finally by A starred. So you get A, B, C, C, B, A. Now in this particular case, um, uh, we, we'll identify the A's and the B's and so on. I know your work, your labor. So A is labor. Your patience. So patience is B, or B is patience. And that you cannot bear those who are evil. The rejection of those who are evil is C. And then he says, you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not. And, and that is C starred because it is of the same kind of statement as the rejection of uh, evil persons or evil actions. It is a rejection of false apostles, evil men. And then that statement is followed by another reference to labor. So uh, we're coming up again out of the uh, chiastic form. You have, um, you have persevered and have patience. And that is B start. And then finally, you have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. That is a star. And you'll notice that B star and A star uh, not only repeat A and B, but they elaborate upon them. Now, you may say, well, that's all very interesting, but what's it got to do with the interpretation of this passage? Uh, is it just a literary or poetic gloss? And the answer is no, it has a lot to do with the interpretation of the passage because it indicates the thoroughness with which the glorified Christ has examined their works. Now, let's take a, a very simple illustration. If you uh, write down somebody's email address, uh, you may take it over the telephone, perhaps. Do you not read it back to them? To make sure you've got it right because you know full well that, uh, that a misplaced full stop or, or comma or one wrong letter uh, will make it useless. So we do commonly use repetition in order to make things sure, to make things clear. And, and that's what's happening here. The repetition is intended to underline the thoroughness with which Christ examines the works, works which at first appear to be very excellent works, works for which he appears at first to commend them, and perhaps does commend them, but nevertheless he's going on to drop this bombshell, isn't he? Nevertheless, I have something against you. You have left your first love. And uh, I think we need to understand that, that Christ is, is, is interested in and active in 
examining the hearts and minds of churches and their members, of course. But there is a corporate heart, a corporate mind uh, that we can think of in terms of a, a given church. And that is illustrated further, I think, by a passage from Hebrews, which I want to read. The writer of Hebrews has been talking about the failure of the uh, Jews who came out of Egypt under Moses, the failure to enter the promised land because they did not have enough faith that God would give them victory over the inhabitants. And because of that lack of faith, they did not enter the rest of the promised land. And the writer is here drawing an analogy between entering the rest or not doing so because of unbelief uh, of the promised land and entering the rest that the believer has when he or she puts their trust fully in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's using that as an analogy, not the main point I want to bring home to you, but you need to know the background. Hebrews 4, verse 11. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, the rest of salvation, he means, lest anyone should fall after the same example of disobedience, the example of the Jews in the wilderness. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a, is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And here's a particular verse I want to underline. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. We have to give an account to the Lord Jesus Christ as churches and as individuals, but here we're thinking of churches. A local church has a responsibility to uh, give an account, and that account will be studied or known in, in very great detail for the things that Christ sees in our hearts and in our minds, in our attitudes, as well as in our actions, are things of great importance to him. So then, what are we to say about this lost love? Turn back to Revelation. Nevertheless, verse 4 of chapter 2, Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Now, it doesn't tell us what that first love was. We know, of course, that the Apostle Paul in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 um, says a great deal about uh, love. Uh, and he says, if we are without love, then whatever we do is of no value in the sight of God. Chapter 13 of 
1 Corinthians, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become as a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to, the, to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Uh, so love is obviously extremely important. But for whom have they lost their love? I mean, one could perhaps give many answers. They've lost the love of evangelism, perhaps, or they've uh, lost a love of giving, or they've left a, even lost and left a love of the word of God. But none of those things seem very likely because the things for which they are commended, the works for which they are, uh, are, are commended, seem to be very comprehensive. And so I, I suggest that, especially in the context where the book of Revelation is presenting Christ as the center and focus of all our thinking, uh, I think we are, or would be right, in concluding that the love that they had lost was a love for Jesus Christ. They were going through the motions, the well-practiced motions, the commendable motions of all kinds of things. Uh, patience, labor, um, particularly, I noticed that statement that they have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. So uh, they're, they're working for the uh, sake of Christ. They're working for the name of Christ. But they have lost that heart knowledge, that heart love of Christ that ought to be the motivation for all our actions, for all our words, for all our thoughts. Remember that the Lord here is, is, is looking into our minds, into our thoughts. He knows what we think. How often when he was walking this earth did he read the minds of those around him, answer their questions before they ask them? Well, that's just a, an illustration of the fact that that, that God searches the hearts and the minds. And it is possible to lose a love for Christ. When uh, the Lord Jesus was being questioned by a, uh, a lawyer in Luke chapter 10, um, uh, Jesus asked him, well, what does the law say? we should do. And the lawyer gets it right. He says, uh, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Quite correct, said the Lord Jesus. Go and do it. But unfortunately, the lawyer 
didn't get the point. The point is that it is completely impossible for any human being, unsaved or saved, to keep that commandment, and by that, to earn uh, eternal life, which is what the lawyer was seeking. We can't do it. We are not capable because we are sinners. We are still sinners after we're saved. We're still sinners. And we're incapable of loving God or, in this context, loving Christ with all that we are, with everything that is in us, with heart, soul, strength and mind, every moment of the day, every day of our life. We just can't do it. And that is why our, our works can never save us, because they're just not good enough. If we could keep that law perfectly throughout our life, then that would be enough to save us. But we can't do it. We can't do it. It's quite impossible for us to do that. And so we have to flee for salvation to a Christ who bears our sins uh, and did so upon the cross, who takes away our sins, who died for us, who was made sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him, a righteousness which comes not through works, but through faith in Christ. And so there is a, a great issue here. It is possible for a church collectively as well as for individuals personally, it is possible for a church to lose its first love. Now, uh, that is, I think, further strengthened by the statement that follows. Verse 4, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works. Now, that actually is, is a very strong clue uh, because there's nothing wrong on paper if you like with their works they're ticking all the boxes uh, they're enduring they're laboring they're being patient they're rejecting uh, false prophets and so on uh, they're doing all that but the motivation is missing and when Christ says, return and do the first works, he's not saying uh, you've got to set up a, a, a whole new system of things that you do as a church. You've got to change everything you do uh, and, and try to do everything better. He's simply saying what you do must be done with the right motive. And that motive must be love for me. Well then, we need to examine ourselves, don't we? We need to look at our own hearts and minds. We need to uh, constantly, I think, ask ourselves, why am I doing this? What I'm doing may be, may be very good, but why am I doing it? Why am I giving these Bible studies? Is it to get a following, get a reputation, or show people how clever I am? 
not particularly clever, but uh, that could be a motive. Um, uh, but no, I, I've got to be doing it. If it's going to be effective in any way, I've got to be doing it out of love for the Lord Jesus Christ. That must be my motivation, my primary motivation, or else nothing I do is going to be effective or useful in the service of God. Nothing I do will help build the kingdom of God if I do not have love for the central figure, for Christ himself, a love that he sustains. There's a, a, a very comforting verse in Romans chapter 5 and, and verse 5, where Paul says that the love of God is shed abroad or poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who is given to us. Now, that can be interpreted in two ways. It can be uh, God's love for others is reproduced in our hearts, or it can be love for God is poured out in our hearts. I suggest that both are true, and that love for God and for his Son, Christ Jesus, comes first, and then we are enabled by the Holy Spirit to love others. Now I'm going to leave it there. I haven't finished the uh, episode. There's more to come, but uh, I don't want to overextend this uh, session, this episode. Uh, we'll take up the remaining things next time we meet together. Thank you.